Good evening. The reading this evening is from um, 2 Kings, chapter 17, and can be found on page 386. That's 2 Kings, chapter 17. Hosea, the last king of Israel. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Eli, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal and, and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had, had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, they worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and un under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors, and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols, and the, themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God, and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. 
They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through all his servants and the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile, into Assyria, and they are still there. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Seraphim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Syria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The people from Babylon made Sukkoth, Benoth. Those from Kuthath made Nergal. And those from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhas and Tartak. And the Seraphites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Seraphim. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines and at high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with their customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices they neither worship the Lord nor, ad nor adhere to the decrees and regulations 
the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you, and do not worship other gods. Rather worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshipping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. Richard, thank you so much for reading our passage. Good evening. Folks, it's lovely to see you. But before I begin, um, I just want to say thank you so much for praying for Joel uh, last Sunday. I really, really appreciate, uh, Rachel and I both really, really appreciate your prayers. Um, it was just so, so happy when he came back home on, on Tuesday. So thank you um, again for your prayers. Hey, let's, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, we pray for your help this evening. This is, in many ways, a hard passage. Um, and so we do pray, Father, that we, you'd help us to understand it um, and to understand uh, your justice and why uh, that is a good thing and help us to see just how evil and terrible um, sin and rebellion against you is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, uh, Lucy Letby, a former nurse, was sentenced uh, in the Man Manchester Crown Court to imprisonment for life for seven offenses of murder and seven offenses of attempted murder. Her crimes are so sickening that whenever I read the newspaper, um, I quickly skip the sections that were talking about her trial. Oh, if I was watching telly, I'd have to quickly change the channel whenever she came on. To be honest, I just, I, I couldn't stomach it. And I think partly, part of the reason I couldn't stomach it was because, you know, it was just a few weeks before Rachel and I were expecting our baby. And I honestly think if I'd watched it and, and, and really followed, you know, the details um, of her crimes, I think I probably would have felt physically sick. And, and vomited, most likely. Yes, I knew that her, her trial was happening, and I was loosely aware of the crime she committed, but I tried to keep the story at arm's length as much as I, as much as I could. Her crimes are so vile that I, I just I didn't want my mind to even have to, to think about the things she'd done. I felt like, like the, fewer, 
The fewer details I know, the better. Yet I knew enough of what was going on, that when, what she'd done, that when she was declared guilty and sentenced to life in prison, I felt a sense of relief. Not that the, the sentence could undo the evil she'd done or remove the pain of the victim's families, but at least there was a sense that justice had been served. But I want us to imagine for a moment that the judge, despite all the evidence available to him, had delivered a verdict, not guilty, and allowed Letby to go free. How would we have felt? I would have felt outraged. I would have thought that the justice system had failed. And folks, I'm sure we all would have felt similarly. The truth is we, we want justice to prevail. We, we all long for justice. Let's be honest, our society needs justice. A society where there's no justice, that's a horrible place to live in. A society where criminals can just roam freely with impunity is terrifying. We all agree that justice matters and that evil like that committed by Letby, it must be punished. It must be judged. Yet interestingly, today, I think people often struggle with with the idea of judgment when it comes to God, when it comes to God judging evil. So we might think things like, why should God judge? Why doesn't God just let people off the hook? Hey, I thought God is meant to be loving and forgiving. In our passage today, we find God judging Israel, the northern kingdom. Was he right to have done so? In this chapter, we learn that God judges Israel by by exiling them from the promised land. Now, imagine how this might have struck the Israelites. I suspect it would have raised all sorts of questions in their minds. Questions like, isn't a God who'd who'd promised us this land? How is he now expelling us from it? Is God being fair? Is God right to judge us here? How were they to make sense of God's judgment? Friends, our our passage will show us that God was right to have judged Israel. And I think it will help us to understand why he is right to judge today and also in the future. God is right to judge. Now, in order to to understand this, uh, the author shows us why God judges. Why does God judge? Because of human rebellion. That's our first point. Have a look with me at verse 5. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, uh, the king of Assyria, uh, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the river Habor, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because... The Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God 
who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. Why did God judge Israel? Because, because they sinned, because they rebelled against him. The, the author makes that so clear in verse 7, doesn't he? All this took place because, because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, how did they, how did they sin? How did they rebel against God? I think primarily in two ways. First, they, they refused to live for him, and they refused to listen to him. They refused to live for him, and they refused to listen to him. Let's look at, uh, let's begin by looking at their refusal to live for God. It's really interesting that um, in verse 7, the, the author reminds their readers that God had brought Israel out, up out of Egypt. Why does he need to, to mention that? He, he also says this in, in verse 36. Clearly, this is significant. Here's why I think he mentions it. So back in Exodus chapter 20, uh, immediately before God gives the Ten Commandments, before God says, you shall have no other gods before me, which of course is the first commandment, he then says, sorry, before that, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. What's the sequence there? God first rescues them, and then he gives the Ten Commandments. In other words, the Lord rescued Israel so that they might serve him as God. But what did they do instead? According to verses 7 and 8, they served other gods. They behaved just like the nations. They lived just like the world. Now, I don't know what you make of God judging Israel for worshiping other gods. Sometimes people can complain that this makes God look a bit insecure. Why does God care about who I worship? Here's why he cares. He alone is worthy of our worship. No one else deserves it. Folks, if, if I uh, were to demand that you worship me, that would be really ugly. It would be monumentally arrogant of me. And you'd probably think that I was really dodgy and want to avoid me and probably even unfriend me on Facebook. And that would be right. Now, look, why would it be ugly of me to do that? Because I'm just a human. But God, he deserves glory and worship because, because he is God. He alone is God. And, and we owe absolutely everything to him. So, so God is not a mere human like, like you and me. In the book of Acts, Paul makes this very point when he says, in God, in him, we live and move and have our being. Friends, this is basic stuff. You know this, but we exist because of God. He created the universe, and he created each and every single one of us. So he deserves our worship. We owe, we owe our entire existence to him. Now, this 
of course, was also true of Israel. But here's the thing. God wasn't only their creator. He was also their savior. He had rescued them from slavery. So, so they owed not only their existence to him, but also their freedom. And God had freed them from slavery in Egypt. Why? Precisely so that they could be free to live in his presence and worship him alone, thus making them distinct from all the other nations. But instead, Israel chose to worship idols, living very much just like the rest of the world. Now, folks, how does this apply to us? God deserves our worship. Why? Because he he created us, and also because he saved us. In John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? In order to, to save it. How are we responding to that salvation? Are we worshiping God alone? Or are there idols in our lives that that we value or trust, that we trust in more or just as much as we trust in God? Now, folks, we've been been covering idols a lot in this series, haven't we? Idolatry is all over the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. But in the Old Testament, you really see it's it's all over the place. Clearly, God wants us to warn us. God wants to warn us to, to flee idolatry. Why is that? Because when we persist in rebellion, God must judge. And, and he has to do that because he is just. Right? If God didn't judge, then that would make him corrupt. Now, here's something that is really important to note. God never, God never judges because he's got a short fuse or a short temper. So Psalm 103 teaches that the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. So although he can be provoked to anger, friends, his anger is always measured. And he is only ever angry when it is right to be so. You see, God doesn't, the red mist doesn't descend on God like it does on you and me. We can lose our cool and we can react in ways that after we feel ashamed of, we think, yeah, I lost, you know, I lost it a bit there. I flew off the handle. That wasn't right. That's what we're like. But that is not what God is like. So our, ang- our anger can be, can be wrong. Sometimes we're angry for the right things, but sometimes we're not. God is always angry for the right things. Now, folks, um, the fact that God is measured, um, we can see this in, in his kindness. In giving people the opportunity to do what? To repent, to turn away from their idolatry. You see, when Israel were judged... They were not judged for lack of warning. God had lovingly warned them time and time and time and time again to repent, but they completely ignored him. 
This leads us to the second reason God judges Israel's rebellion. You see, not only did they refuse to, to live for God, they also refused to listen to God. Have a look at me at verse 12. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. If there's one thing that Israel can't blame their they're being judged on, is it's lack of warning. Verse 15 makes, um, also makes this point. So folks, this isn't, like, this isn't like getting a parking ticket for parking on a double yellow line when, when the lines are barely visible and you end up feeling hard done by. No, God, God sent prophets to warn Israel to repent. And at this point, it's worth, it's worth asking, did God even have to do that? It was very clear at the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai that, that Israel were not to commit idolatry. It's only because God is kind that he, he warns Israel on multiple occasions and through multiple prophets to repent. Yet sadly, his warnings fell on deaf ears. Friends, when, when God warns people to turn away from their sin, he's not bluffing. <laughs> he's not like a parent who, who promises to discipline their child if, if they seriously misbehave, but then never follows through. When, when God warns people to repent, he's doing it because He wants to give us the chance to turn to him, to find forgiveness rather than face the judgment that our sins deserve. The fact that Israel repeatedly refused to listen to God's warnings, what did it mean? It meant that God was right to judge them. They couldn't go, hey, we didn't know. We had no idea. God ensured that they did. So they could have zero complaints. Why did God judge Israel? Because of their unrepentant sin, because of their rebellion. They refused to live for God, and they refused to listen to God. And how did God judge them? By casting them out of his presence. This is our second point, banishment. Have a look at me at verse 16. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel. And remove them from his presence. And then verse 20. 
Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. Just how depraved did things get for Israel? As part of their devotion to their idols, they were killing their own little children. Imagine if God did nothing about that. One author writes, A God who was not provoked when people made their children pass through a fire could hardly be worshipped. We do not admire those who stand idly by while others are being abused. Friends, why should, why should God have allowed Israel to continue dwelling with him in the promised land? They were mutinying against him through the way they were living, even killing their own children as part of their idolatry. Their worship of Yahweh was, was a sham. And so they had no right whatsoever to complain about God's justice. Now, what's the lesson here for us? God has a new promised land for his people. Not, not a temporary one in this world, in the Middle East, but a, a glorious, everlasting one, the new creation. And there we will have full access to God's presence. Who are those who can dwell with God there? Well, it can't be those who, who refuse to worship God. Israel, the northern kingdom, they only paid lip service to God. They were not interested in worshiping him alone or in living according to his word. They wanted to live their way rather than God's way. And in a sense... I think this shows that they really weren't interested at all in being in God's presence. If they were, hey, surely they would have valued it. They would have treasured it more. Look, if, if a guy claims to, to love his fiancée and love being around his fiancée, but every time they meet, he's just scrolling through his social media feed feet on his phone, ignoring her, and then goes on dates with other women behind her back, are you going to believe him when he tells you that he loves his fiance? Similarly, if, if Israel really appreciated dwelling with God, they wouldn't have been so focused on serving their idols. So in a sense, when when God cast them out of his presence, he was just giving them what they wanted. The opportunity to go and spend more time with their idols. That's what you want? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. The author I quoted earlier um, also writes this. If if a person refuses to bow before God and say, your will be done, a time will come when God will say to that person, 
your will be done. Depart from me forever. I'm, I'm always intrigued when, when I speak to people who show little interest in Christianity, uh, yet believe that if heaven happens to exist, if it just turns out that it happens to exist, that they'll go there rather than go to hell. And it intrigues me because why do unbelievers even want to go to heaven if it turns out to exist? Why would they even be interested in going there? Do you know who's there? God. And he's the main attraction. And here they're showing zero interest in him. And if you're not interested in God now... (laughs) Why do you think you'll be when you're supposedly in heaven? If you refuse to serve him now, then you won't want to serve him in heaven either. And if we don't want to serve him, then we will not be in his presence. If we reject him now, we would also reject him in the future. And say he'll give us what we want. Banishment from his presence. My folks, I appreciate that uh, this talk has been heavy. And that's because our passage is really heavy. If, if this passage, if I weren't preaching right now and you didn't think, this is hard going, this is heavy, then it would be, and I was making this kind of, I don't know, lighter. It'd probably be because I had been tone deaf and hadn't really felt the force of the text and, and the tone of this text. This text is, it is yeah, it is, it's tough. It is hard. It doesn't pull any punches. And we need it. We need it because living for God is, is important and listening to God is important. Now, I want to close with, with how people can, can return to God's presence. Because when we look at the fate of the northern kingdom in our passage, it can feel like there's simply no way back for any of its members. So I want us now to turn to our final point, how God welcomes people back. Here's how he he does it. Turn to his son. Turn to his son. In in John chapter 4, we read about Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at a well. Why is the fact that she's a Samaritan relevant? Look, it's not because um, Samaritans were from, were from Samaria. Sometimes people can think that because, you know, Samaritan, Samaria, it sounds kind of similar, uh, but there's no, there's no evidence to suggest that um, Samaritans were from Samaria. Now, here's why I still think the Samaritan woman is relevant. Samaritans were descendants of Israel, the the northern kingdom that was banished from God's presence. And the Jews who who descended from the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, they hated the Samaritans. Yet Jesus himself, from the line of Judah, approached a Samaritan woman. A woman who was an outcast, even in her own community. 
a woman, a woman who was living in sin. And Jesus knew this about her. And he says to her that he wants to give her living water. He says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus meets a woman from the kingdom who'd been banished from God's presence, and he welcomes her back in. How could he do that? He could do it because he knew that on the cross, he would pave the way for her to return to God. And not only for her to return, but for anyone who comes to him for forgiveness and eternal life with God. Friends, just as we rely on water to have life, we need the living water that Jesus offers to have eternal life. Without water in this world, we can't live, right? We cannot have life. And without living water, without Jesus, we cannot have eternal life. Will we drink the living water? That is, will we rely on Jesus for eternal life in a similar way to how we rely on water for earthly life? Wonderfully, Jesus offers us a way into God's presence. Folks, aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful for him? It doesn't matter how sinful, how rebellious you've been. God sent him to make a way for you to be able to live with him forever, never, ever to be banished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who who cares about justice, who hates evil, and doesn't turn a blind eye to it. Father, thank you that your your judgment and justice are, are right. Thank you that you are slow to anger, that you never judge um, because, you, you know, because you've lost your, your temper like we often do. Father, thank you that we can trust you as the just judge and help us to keep relying on Jesus, the living water, for forgiveness so that we might be saved from judgment and have eternal life with you in your presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.